Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Book One, Chapter 14 of War and Peace, Volume 1 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter 14 After receiving her visitors, the Countess was so tired that she gave orders to admit no one, but the porter was told to be sure to invite to dinner all who came to congratulate. The Countess wished to have a tete-a-tete -tete talk with a friend of her childhood, Princess Anna Mikhailovna, whom she had not seen properly since she returned from Petersburg. Anna Mikhailovna, with her tear-worn but pleasant face, drew her chair nearer to that of the Countess. "'With you I will be quite frank,' said Anna Mikhailovna. "'There are not many left of us old friends. That's why I so value your friendship.' Anna Mikhailovna looked at Vera and paused. The Countess pressed her friend's hand. "'Vera,' she said to her eldest daughter, who was evidently not a favourite, "'how is it you have so little tact? Don't you see you are not wanted here? Go to the other girls, or—' The handsome Vera smiled contemptuously but did not seem at all hurt. "'If you had told me sooner, Mama, I would have gone,' she replied as she rose to go to her own room but as she passed the sitting-room she noticed two couples sitting, one pair at each window. She stopped and smiled scornfully. Sonia was sitting close to Nicholas, who was copying out some verses for her, the first he had ever written. Boris and Natasha were at the other window and ceased talking when Vera entered. Sonia and Natasha looked at Vera with guilty, happy faces. It was pleasant and touching to see these little girls in love, but apparently the sight of them roused no pleasant feeling in Vera. "'How often have I asked you not to take my things?' she said. "'You have a room of your own.' And she took the inkstand from Nicholas. "'In a minute, in a minute,' he said, dipping his pen. "'You always manage to do things at the wrong time,' continued Vera. "'You came rushing into the drawing-room so that everyone felt ashamed of you.' Though what she said was quite just, Perhaps for that very reason no one replied, and the four simply looked at one another. She lingered in the room with the inkstand in her hand. "'And at your age what secrets can there be between Natasha and Boris, or between you two? It's all nonsense!' "'Now, Vera, what does it matter to you?' said Natasha in defence, speaking very gently. She seemed that day to be more than ever kind and affectionate to everyone. "'Very silly,' said Vera. "'I am ashamed of you. Secrets, indeed!' "'All have secrets of their own,' answered Natasha, getting warmer. "'We don't interfere with you and Berg.' "'I should think not,' said Vera. "'Because there can never be anything wrong in my behaviour. But I'll just tell Mama how you are behaving with Boris.' "'Natalia Ilinichna behaves very well to me.' remarked Boris. I have nothing to complain of. 
Don't, Boris. You are such a diplomat that it is really tiresome," said Natasha in a mortified voice that trembled slightly. She used the word diplomat, which was just then much in vogue among the children, in the special sense they attached to it. Why does she bother me? And she added, turning to Vera, You'll never understand it, because you've never loved anyone. You have no heart. You are a Madame de Genlis and nothing more." This nickname, bestowed on Vera by Nicholas, was considered very stinging. "'And your greatest pleasure is to be unpleasant to people. Go and flirt with Berg as much as you please,' she finished quickly. "'I shall not at any rate run after a young man before visitors.' "'Well, now you've done what you wanted,' put in Nicholas, said unpleasant things to everyone and upset them. Let's go to the nursery." All four, like a flock of scared birds, got up and left the room. "'The unpleasant things were said to me,' remarked Vera. "'I said none to anyone.' "'Madame de Genie, Madame de Genie,' shouted the laughing voices through the door. The handsome Vera, who produced such an irritating and unpleasant effect on everyone, smiled, and evidently unmoved by what had been said to her went to the looking-glass and arranged her hair and scarf. Looking at her own handsome face, she seemed to become still colder and calmer. In the drawing-room the conversation was still going on. "'Ah, my dear,' said the Countess, "'my life is not all roses either. Don't I know that at the rate we are living our means won't last long? It's all the club and his easy-going nature. Even in the country do we get any rest?' theatricals, hunting, and heaven knows what besides. But don't let's talk about me. Tell me how you managed everything. I often wonder at you, Annette, how at your age you can rush off alone in a carriage to Moscow, to Petersburg, to those ministers and great people, and know how to deal with them all. It's quite astonishing. How did you get things settled? I couldn't possibly do it." "'Ah, my love,' answered Anna Mikhailovna. God grant you never know what it is to be left a widow, without means and with a son you love to distraction. One learns many things, then," she added with a certain pride. That lawsuit taught me much. When I went to see one of those big people, I write a note. Princess So-and-so desires an interview with So-and-so, and then I take a cab and go myself, two, three, or four times, till I get what I want. I don't mind what they think of me." "'Well, and to whom did you apply about Bori?' asked the Countess. "'You see yours is already an officer in the guards, while my Nicholas is going as a cadet. There's no one to interest himself for him. To whom did you apply?' "'To Prince Vasily. He was so kind. He at once agreed to everything and put the matter before the Emperor.' said Princess Anna Mikhailovna enthusiastically, quite forgetting all the humiliation she had endured to gain her end. "'Has Prince Vasily aged much?' asked the Countess. "'I have not seen him since we acted together at the Rumyantsov's theatricals. I expect he has forgotten me.' "'He paid me attentions in those days,' said the Countess with a smile. "'He is just the same as ever,' replied Anna Mikhailovna overflowing with amiability. His position has not turned his head at all. He said to me, I am sorry I can do so little for you, dear princess, 
I am at your command. Yes, he is a fine fellow and a very kind relation. But, Natali, you know my love for my son. I would do anything for his happiness. And my affairs are in such a bad way that my position is now a terrible one," continued Anna Mikhailovna, sadly dropping her voice. My wretched lawsuit takes all I have and makes no progress. Would you believe it? I have literally not a penny and don't know how to equip Boris." She took out her handkerchief and began to cry. "'I need five hundred roubles and have only one twenty-five-rouble note. I am in such a state. My only hope now is in Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bezukhov. If he will not assist his godson—you know he is Bori's godfather—and allow him something for his maintenance, all my trouble will have been thrown away. I shall not be able to equip him." The Countess's eyes filled with tears, and she pondered in silence. "'I often think, though, perhaps it's a sin,' said the Princess, "'that here lives Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bezukhov, so rich, all alone. That tremendous fortune! And what is his life worth? It's a burden to him, and Bori's life is only just beginning.' "'Surely he will leave something to Boris,' said the Countess. "'Heaven only knows, my dear. These rich grandees are so selfish. Still, I will take Boris and go to see him at once, and I shall speak to him straight out. Let people think what they will of me. It's really all the same to me when my son's fate is at stake.' The Princess rose. "'It's now two o'clock, and you dine at four. There will be just time.' And like a practical Petersburg lady who knows how to make the most of time, Anna Mikhailovna sent someone to call her son, and went into the anteroom with him. "'Good-bye, my dear,' said she to the Countess, who saw her to the door, and added in a whisper so that her son should not hear, "'Wish me good luck.' "'Are you going to Count Cyril Vladimirovich, my dear?' said the Count, coming out from the dining-hall into the anteroom, and he added, "'If he is better—' Ask Pierre to dine with us. He has been to the house, you know, and danced with the children. Be sure to invite him, my dear. We will see how Taras distinguishes himself today. He says Count Orloff never gave such a dinner as ours will be. End of Book One, Chapter Fourteen. Book One, Chapter Fifteen of War and Peace. Volume One by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Fifteen. My dear Boris, said Princess Anna Mikhailovna to her son as Countess Rostova's carriage in which they were seated drove over the straw covered street and turned into the wide courtyard of Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bezukhov's house. My dear Boris, said the mother, drawing her hand from beneath her old mantle and laying it timidly and tenderly on her son's arm. Be affectionate and attentive to him. Count Cyril Vladimirovich is your godfather after all, and your future depends on him. Remember that, my dear, and be nice to him, as you so well know how to be. If only I knew that anything besides humiliation would come of it, answered her son coldly. But I have promised and will do it for your sake. 
Although the hall-porter saw someone's carriage standing at the entrance, after scrutinizing the mother and son, who, without asking to be announced, had passed straight through the glass porch between the rows of statues and niches, and looking significantly at the lady's old cloak, he asked whether they wanted the Count or the Princesses, and, hearing that they wished to see the Count, said His Excellency was worse today, and that His Excellency was not receiving anyone. "'We may as well go back,' said the son in French. "'My dear!' exclaimed his mother imploringly, again laying her hand on his arm as if that touch might soothe or rouse him. Boris said no more but looked inquiringly at his mother without taking off his cloak. "'My friend,' said Anna Mikhailovna in gentle tones, addressing the hall-porter, "'I know Count Cyril Vladimirovitch is very ill. That's why I have come. I am a relation. I shall not disturb him, my friend. I only need to see Prince Vasily Sergeyevich. He is staying here, is he not? Please announce me.' The hall-porter suddenly pulled a bell that rang upstairs and turned away. "'Princess Drubetskaya to see Prince Vasily Sergeyevich,' he called to a footman dressed in knee-breeches, shoes, and a swallow-tail coat, who ran downstairs and looked over from the halfway landing. The mother smoothed the folds of her dyed silk dress before a large Venetian mirror in the wall, and in her trodden-down shoes briskly ascended the carpeted stairs. "'My dear,' she said to her son, once more stimulating him by a touch. "'You promised me.' The son, lowering his eyes, followed her quietly. They entered the large hall, from which one of the doors led to the apartments assigned to Prince Vasily. Just as the mother and son, having reached the middle of the hall, were about to ask their way of an elderly footman who had sprung up as they entered, the bronze handle of one of the doors turned and Prince Vasily came out, wearing a velvet coat with a single star on his breast, as was his custom when at home, taking leave of a good-looking, dark-haired man. This was the celebrated Petersburg doctor, Lorraine. "'Then it is certain,' said the prince. "'Prince, humanum est rare. To err is human. But,' replied the doctor, swallowing his r's, and pronouncing the Latin words with a French accent, very well, very well." Seeing Anna Mikhailovna and her son, Prince Vasily dismissed the doctor with a bow and approached them silently, and with a look of inquiry. The son noticed that an expression of profound sorrow suddenly clouded his mother's face, and he smiled slightly. "'Ah, Prince, in what sad circumstances we meet again! And how is our dear invalid?' said she, as though unaware of the cold, offensive look fixed on her. Prince Vasily stared at her and at Boris questioningly and perplexed. Boris bowed politely. Prince Vasily, without acknowledging the bow, turned to Anna Mikhailovna, answering her query by a movement of the head and lips, indicating very little hope for the patient. "'Is it possible?' exclaimed Anna Mikhailovna. "'Oh, how awful! It is terrible to think—this is my son,' she added, indicating Boris. He wanted to thank you himself." Boris bowed again politely. "'Believe me, Prince, a mother's heart will never forget what you have done for us.' "'I am glad I was able to do you a service, my dear Anna Mikhailovna,' said Prince Vasily, arranging his lace frill, 
and in tone and manner, here in Moscow to Anna Mikhailovna, whom he had placed under an obligation, assuming an air of much greater importance than he had done in Petersburg at Anna Shearer's reception. "'Try to serve well, and show yourself worthy,' added he, addressing Boris with severity. "'I am glad. Are you here on leave?' He went on in his usual tone of indifference. "'I am awaiting orders to join my new regiment, Your Excellency.' replied Boris, betraying neither annoyance at the prince's brusque manner nor a desire to enter into conversation, but speaking so quietly and respectfully that the prince gave him a searching glance. "'Are you living with your mother?' "'I am living at Countess Rostova's,' replied Boris, again adding, "'Your Excellency.' "'That is, with Ilya Rostov, who married Natalia Shinshina,' said Anna Mikhailovna. "'I know, I know.' answered Prince Vasily in his monotonous voice. I never could understand how Natalie made up her mind to marry that unlicked bear. A perfectly absurd and stupid fellow, and a gambler too, I am told. But a very kind man, Prince, said Anna Mikhailovna, with a pathetic smile, as though she too knew that Count Rostov deserved this censure, but asked him not to be too hard on the poor old man. What do the doctors say? asked the princess, after a pause, her worn face again expressing deep sorrow. "'They give little hope,' replied the prince. "'And I should so like to thank uncle once for all his kindness to me and Boris. He is his godson,' she added, her tone suggesting that this fact ought to give Prince Vasily much satisfaction. Prince Vasily became thoughtful and frowned. Anna Mikhailovna saw that he was afraid of finding in her a rival for Count Bezukhov's fortune, and hastened to reassure him. "'If it were not for my sincere affection and devotion to uncle,' said she, uttering the word with peculiar assurance and unconcern, "'I know his character, noble, upright. But, you see, he has no one with him except the young princesses. They are still young.' She bent her head and continued in a whisper. Has he performed his final duty, Prince? How priceless are those last moments! It can make things no worse, and it is absolutely necessary to prepare him if he is so ill. We women, Prince—and she smiled tenderly—always know how to say these things. I absolutely must see him, however painful it may be for me. I am used to suffering." Evidently the Prince understood her and also understood, as he had done at Anna Pavlovna's, that it would be difficult to get rid of Anna Mikhailovna. "'Would not such a meeting be too trying for him, dear Anna Mikhailovna?' said he. "'Let us wait until evening. The doctors are expecting a crisis.' "'But one cannot delay, Prince, at such a moment. Consider that the welfare of his soul is at stake. Ah, it is awful, the duties of a Christian!' A door of one of the inner rooms opened, and one of the princesses, the Count's niece, entered with a cold, stern face. The length of her body was strikingly out of proportion to her short legs. Prince Vasily turned to her. "'Well, how is he?' "'Still the same. But what can you expect? This noise,' said the princess, looking at Anna Mikhailovna as at a stranger. "'Ah, my dear, I hardly knew you.' said Anna Mikhailovna, with a happy smile, ambling lightly up to the Count's niece. 
I have come, and am at your service, to help you nurse my uncle. I imagine what you have gone through." And she sympathetically turned up her eyes. The princess gave no reply, and did not even smile, but left the room as Anna Mikhailovna took off her gloves, and, occupying the position she had conquered, settled down in an armchair, inviting Prince Vasily to take a seat beside her. "'Boris,' she said to her son, with a smile, "'I shall go in to see the Count, my uncle. But you, my dear, had better go to Pierre meanwhile, and don't forget to give him the Rostovs' invitation. They ask him to dinner. I suppose he won't go?' she continued, turning to the Prince. "'On the contrary,' replied the Prince, who had plainly become depressed. "'I shall be only too glad if you relieve me of that young man.' "'Here he is, and the Count has not once asked for him.' He shrugged his shoulders. A footman conducted Boris down one flight of stairs and up another to Pierre's rooms. End of Book One, Chapter Fifteen Book One, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Sixteen. Pierre, after all, had not managed to choose a career for himself in Petersburg and had been expelled from there for riotous conduct and sent to Moscow. The story told about him at Count Rostov's was true. Pierre had taken part in tying a policeman to a bear. He had now been for some days in Moscow, and was staying as usual at his father's house, though he expected that the story of his escapade would be already known in Moscow, and that the ladies about his father, who were never favorably disposed toward him, would have used it to turn the count against him, he nevertheless on the day of his arrival went to his father's part of the house. Entering the drawing-room, where the princesses spent most of their time, he greeted the ladies, two of whom were sitting at embroidery frames while a third read aloud. It was the eldest who was reading, the one who had met Anna Mikhailovna. The two younger ones were embroidering. Both were rosy and pretty, and they differed only in that one had a little mole on her lip which made her much prettier. Pierre was received as if he were a corpse or a leper. The eldest princess paused in her reading and silently stared at him with frightened eyes. The second assumed precisely the same expression, while the youngest, the one with the mole, who was of a cheerful and lively disposition, bent over her frame to hide a smile probably evoked by the amusing scene she foresaw. She drew her wool down through the canvas, and, scarcely able to refrain from laughing, stooped as if trying to make out the pattern. "'How do you do, cousin?' said Pierre. "'You don't recognize me?' "'I recognize you only too well, too well.' "'How is the Count? Can I see him?' asked Pierre, awkwardly as usual, but unabashed. "'The Count is suffering physically and mentally and apparently you have done your best to increase his mental sufferings." "'Can I see the Count?' Pierre again asked. "'Hm! If you wish to kill him, to kill him outright, you can see him. Olga, go and see whether Uncle's beef tea is ready. It is almost time,' she added, giving Pierre to understand that they were busy, and busy making his father comfortable, while evidently he, Pierre, was only busy causing him annoyance. 
Olga went out. Pierre stood looking at the sisters. Then he bowed and said, "'Then I will go to my rooms. You will let me know when I can see him.' And he left the room, followed by the low but ringing laughter of the sister with the mole. Next day Prince Vasily had arrived and settled in the Count's house. He sent for Pierre and said to him, "'My dear fellow, if you are going to behave here as you did in Petersburg, you will end very badly. That is all I have to say to you. The Count is very, very ill, and you must not see him at all.' Since then Pierre had not been disturbed, and had spent the whole time in his rooms upstairs. When Boris appeared at his door, Pierre was pacing up and down his room, stopping occasionally at a corner to make menacing gestures at the wall, as if running a sword through an invisible foe, and glaring savagely over his spectacles, and then again resuming his walk, muttering indistinct words, shrugging his shoulders, and gesticulating. "'England is done for,' said he, scowling and pointing his finger at someone unseen. "'Mr. Pitt, as a traitor to the nation and to the rights of man, is sentenced to—' But before Pierre— who at that moment imagined himself to be Napoleon in person, and to have just effected the dangerous crossing of the Straits of Dover and captured London, could pronounce Pitt's sentence, he saw a well-built and handsome young officer entering his room. Pierre paused. He had left Moscow when Boris was a boy of fourteen, and had quite forgotten him, but in his usual impulsive and hearty way he took Boris by the hand with a friendly smile. "'Do you remember me?' asked Boris quietly, with a pleasant smile. I have come with my mother to see the Count, but it seems he is not well. Yes, it seems he is ill. People are always disturbing him," answered Pierre, trying to remember who this young man was. Boris felt that Pierre did not recognize him, but did not consider it necessary to introduce himself, and without experiencing the least embarrassment looked Pierre straight in the face. Count Rostov asks you to come to dinner today," said he, after a considerable pause which made Pierre feel uncomfortable. "'Ah! Count Rostov!' exclaimed Pierre joyfully. "'Then you are his son, Ilya? Only fancy, I didn't know you at first. Do you remember how we went to the Sparrow Hills with Madame Jacot? It's such an age!' "'You are mistaken,' said Boris deliberately, with a bold and slightly sarcastic smile. I am Boris, son of Princess Anna Mikhailovna Dubetskaya. Rostov, the father, is Ilya, and his son is Nicholas. I never knew any Madame Jacot." Pierre shook his head and arms as if attacked by mosquitoes or bees. Oh, dear, what am I thinking about? I've mixed everything up. One has so many relatives in Moscow. So you are Boris? Of course. Well, now we know where we are. And what do you think of the Boulogne expedition? The English will come off badly, you know, if Napoleon gets across the Channel. I think the expedition is quite feasible. If only Villeneuve doesn't make a mess of things!" Boris knew nothing about the Boulogne expedition. He did not read the papers, and it was the first time he had heard Villeneuve's name. We here in Moscow are more occupied with dinner-parties and scandal than with politics said he in his quiet, ironical tone. I know nothing about it, and have not thought about it. Moscow is chiefly busy with gossip," he continued. 
Just now they are talking about you and your father." Pierre smiled in his good-natured way, as if afraid for his companion's sake that the latter might say something he would afterwards regret. But Boris spoke distinctly, clearly, and dryly, looking straight into Pierre's eyes. "'Moscow has nothing else to do but gossip,' Boris went on. "'Everybody is wondering to whom the Count will leave his fortune, though he may perhaps outlive us all, as I sincerely hope he will.' "'Yes, it is all very horrid,' interrupted Pierre. "'Very horrid.' Pierre was still afraid that this officer might inadvertently say something disconcerting to himself. "'And it must seem to you,' said Boris, flushing slightly, but not changing his tone or attitude, "'it must seem to you that everyone is trying to get something out of the rich man.' "'So it does,' thought Pierre. "'But I just wish to say, to avoid misunderstandings, that you are quite mistaken if you reckon me or my mother among such people. We are very poor, but for my own part, at any rate, for the very reason that your father is rich, I don't regard myself as a relation of his, and neither I nor my mother would ever ask or take anything from him." For a long time Pierre could not understand, but when he did, he jumped up from the sofa, seized Boris under the elbow in his quick, clumsy way, and blushing far more than Boris, began to speak with a feeling of mingled shame and vexation. "'Well, this is strange. Do you suppose I—who could think—I know very well—' But Boris again interrupted him. "'I am glad I have spoken out fully. Perhaps you did not like it? You must excuse me.' said he, putting Pierre at ease instead of being put at ease by him. But I hope I have not offended you. I always make it a rule to speak out. Well, what answer am I to take? Will you come to dinner at the Rostovs?' And Boris, having apparently relieved himself of an owner's duty, and extricated himself from an awkward situation and placed another in it, became quite pleasant again. "'No, but I say—' said Pierre, calming down. "'You are a wonderful fellow. What you have just said is good, very good. Of course you don't know me. We have not met for such a long time, not since we were children. You might think that I—I understand, quite understand. I could not have done it myself, I should not have had the courage, but it's splendid. I am very glad to have made your acquaintance. It's queer he added, after a pause, that you should have suspected me. He began to laugh. Well, what of it? I hope we'll get better acquainted. And he pressed Boris's hand. Do you know, I have not once been in to see the Count. He has not sent for me. I am sorry for him as a man, but what can one do? And so you think Napoleon will manage to get an army across? asked Boris with a smile. Pierre saw that Boris wished to change the subject, and being of the same mind, he began explaining the advantages and disadvantages of the Boulogne expedition. A footman came in to summon Boris. The princess was going. Pierre, in order to make Boris better acquaintance, promised to come to dinner, and warmly pressing his hand, looked affectionately over his spectacles into Boris's eyes. After he had gone, Pierre continued pacing up and down the room for a long time 
no longer piercing an imaginary foe with his imaginary sword, but smiling at the remembrance of that pleasant, intelligent, and resolute young man. As often happens in early youth, especially to one who leads a lonely life, he felt an unaccountable tenderness for this young man and made up his mind that they would be friends. Prince Vasily saw the princess off. She held a handkerchief to her eyes, and her face was tearful. "'It is dreadful, dreadful,' she was saying. "'But cost me what it may, I shall do my duty. I will come and spend the night. He must not be left like this. Every moment is precious. I can't think why his nieces put it off. Perhaps God will help me find a way to prepare him. Adieu, Prince. May God support you.' "'Adieu, ma bonne answered Prince Vasily, turning away from her. "'Oh, he is in a dreadful state,' said the mother to her son when they were in the carriage. "'He hardly recognizes anybody.' "'I don't understand, Mama. What is his attitude to Pierre?' asked the son. "'The will will show that, my dear. Our fate also depends on it.' "'But why do you expect that he will leave us anything?' "'Ah, my dear! He is so rich, and we are so poor. Well, that is hardly a sufficient reason, Mamma. Oh, heaven! How ill he is! exclaimed the mother. End of Book One, Chapter Sixteen. Book One, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Seventeen. After Anna Mikhailovna had driven off with her son to visit Count Cyril Vladimirovich Bezukhov, Countess Rostova sat for a long time all alone, applying her handkerchief to her eyes. At last she rang. What is the matter with you, my dear? she said crossly to the maid, who kept her waiting some minutes. "'Don't you wish to serve me? Then I'll find you another place.' The Countess was upset by her friend's sorrow and humiliating poverty, and was therefore out of sorts, a state of mind which with her always found expression in calling her maid my dear, and speaking to her with exaggerated politeness. "'I am very sorry, ma'am,' answered the maid. Ask the Count to come to me." The Count came waddling in to see his wife with a rather guilty look as usual. "'Well, little Countess, what a sauté of game on my dare we are to have, my dear! I tasted it! The thousand roubles I paid for Taras were not ill-spent. He is worth it!' He sat down by his wife, his elbows on his knees and his hands ruffling his grey hair. "'What are your commands, little Countess?' "'You see, my dear, what's that mess?' she said, pointing to his waistcoat. "'It's the sauté, most likely,' she added with a smile. "'Well, you see, Count, I want some money.' Her face became sad. "'Oh, little Countess!' And the Count began bustling to get out his pocket-book. "'I want a great deal, Count. I want five hundred roubles.' And taking out her cambric handkerchief, she began wiping her husband's waistcoat. "'Yes, immediately, immediately!' "'Hey, who's there?' he called out in a tone only used by persons who are certain that those they call will rush to obey the summons. 
Send Dmitri to me. Dmitri, a man of good family, who had been brought up in the Count's house and now managed all his affairs, stepped softly into the room. "'This is what I want, my dear fellow,' said the Count to the deferential young man who had entered. "'Bring me—' He reflected a moment. "'Yes, bring me seven hundred roubles, yes. But, mind, don't bring me such tattered and dirty notes as last time, but nice clean ones for the Countess.' "'Yes, Dmitri, clean ones, please.' said the Countess, sighing deeply. "'When would you like them, Your Excellency?' asked Dmitri. "'Allow me to inform you. But don't be uneasy,' he added, noticing that the Count was beginning to breathe heavily and quickly, which was always a sign of approaching anger. "'I was forgetting. Do you wish it brought at once?' "'Yes, yes, just so. Bring it. Give it to the Countess.' "'What a treasure that Dmitri is!' added the Count with a smile when the young man had departed. There is never any impossible with him. That's a thing I hate. Everything is possible." "'Ah, money, Count, money! How much sorrow it causes in the world!' said the Countess. "'But I am in great need of this sum.' "'You, my little Countess, are a notorious spendthrift,' said the Count, and having kissed his wife's hand he went back to his study. When Anna Mikhailovna returned from Count Bezukhov's, the money, all in clean notes, was lying ready under a handkerchief on the Countess' little table, and Anna Mikhailovna noticed that something was agitating her. "'Well, my dear?' asked the Countess. "'Oh, what a terrible state he is in! One would not know him, he is so ill. I was only there a few moments, and hardly said a word. Annette, for heaven's sake, don't refuse me.' the Countess began, with a blush that looked very strange on her thin, dignified, elderly face, and she took the money from under the handkerchief. Anna Mikhailovna instantly guessed her intention, and stooped to be ready to embrace the Countess at the appropriate moment. "'This is for Boris, from me, for his outfit.' Anna Mikhailovna was already embracing her and weeping. The Countess wept, too. They wept because they were friends and because they were kind-hearted, and because they, friends from childhood, had to think about such a base thing as money, and because their youth was over. But those tears were pleasant to them both. End of Book One, Chapter Seventeen Book One, Chapter Eighteen of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Eighteen Countess Rostova, with her daughters and a large number of guests, was already seated in the drawing-room. The Count took the gentlemen into his study and showed them his choice collection of Turkish pipes. From time to time he went out to ask, Hasn't she come yet? They were expecting Maria Dmitrievna Akrosimova, known in society as La Terrible Dragon, a lady distinguished not for wealth or rank, but for common sense and frank plainness of speech. Maria Dmitrievna was known to the imperial family as well as to all Moscow and Petersburg, and both cities wondered at her, laughed privately at her rudenesses, and told good stories about her, while none the less, all without exception, respected and feared her. 
In the Count's room, which was full of tobacco smoke, they talked of the war that had been announced in a manifesto, and about the recruiting. None of them had yet seen the manifesto, but they all knew it had appeared. The Count sat on the sofa between two guests who were smoking and talking. He neither smoked nor talked, but bending his head first to one side and then to the other, watched the smokers with evident pleasure, and listened to the conversation of his two neighbors, whom he egged on against each other. One of them was a sallow, clean-shaven civilian with a thin and wrinkled face, already growing old, though he was dressed like a most fashionable young man. He sat with his legs up on the sofa as if quite at home, and having stuck an amber mouthpiece far into his mouth, was inhaling the smoke spasmodically and screwing up his eyes. This was an old bachelor, Shinchin, a cousin of the Countess, a man with a sharp tongue as they said in Moscow society. He seemed to be condescending to his companion. The latter, a fresh rosy officer of the guards, irreproachably washed, brushed, and buttoned, held his pipe in the middle of his mouth and with red lips gently inhaled the smoke, letting it escape from his handsome mouth in rings. This was Lieutenant Berg, an officer in the Semenov regiment, with whom Boris was to travel to join the army, and about whom Natasha had teased her elder sister Vera, speaking of Berg as her intended. The Count sat between them and listened attentively. His favorite occupation, when not playing Boston, a card game he was very fond of, was that of listener, especially when he succeeded in setting two loquacious talkers at one another. "'Well, then, old chap, montre honorable, Alphonse Karlovich,' said Shinshin, laughing ironically and mixing the most ordinary Russian expressions with the choicest French phrases, which was a peculiarity of his speech. "'Vous comptez-vous faire des rentes sur le temps?' "'You expect to make an income out of the government. "'You want to make something out of your company?' "'No, Peter Nikolaevich. "'I only want to show that in the cavalry "'the advantages are far less than in the infantry. "'Just consider my own position now, Peter Nikolaevich.' Berg always spoke quietly, politely, and with great precision. His conversation always related entirely to himself. He would remain calm and silent when the talk related to any topic that had no direct bearing on himself. He could remain silent for hours without being at all put out of countenance himself, or making others uncomfortable. But as soon as the conversation concerned himself, he would begin to talk circumstantially and with evident satisfaction. Consider my position, Peter Nikolaevich. Were I in the cavalry, I should get not more than two hundred roubles every four months even with the rank of lieutenant. But as it is, I receive two hundred and thirty," said he, looking at Shinshin and the Count with a joyful, pleasant smile, as if it were obvious to him that his success must always be the chief desire of everyone else. Besides that, Peter Nikolaevich, by exchanging into the guards I shall be in a more prominent position," continued Berg. And vacancies occur much more frequently in the foot-guards then just think what can be done with two hundred and thirty roubles. I even managed to put a little aside and to send something to my father," he went on, emitting a smoke-ring. La balance est. So that squares matters. A German knows how to skin a flint, as the proverb says," remarked Shinshin, 
moving his pipe to the other side of his mouth and winking at the Count. The Count burst out laughing. The other guests, seeing that Shinshin was talking, came up to listen. Berg, oblivious of irony or indifference, continued to explain how, by exchanging into the guards, he had already gained a step on his old comrades of the Cadet Corps, how in wartime the company commander might get killed, and he, as senior in the company, might easily succeed to the post, how popular he was with everyone in the regiment, and how satisfied his father was with him. Berg evidently enjoyed narrating all this, and did not seem to suspect that others, too, might have their own interests. But all he said was so prettily sedate, and the naivete of his youthful egotism was so obvious, that he disarmed his hearers. "'Well, my boy, you'll get along wherever you go, foot or horse. That I'll warrant,' said Shinshin, patting him on the shoulder and taking his feet off the sofa. Berg smiled joyously. The Count, followed by his guests, went into the drawing-room. It was just a moment before a big dinner when the assembled guests, expecting the summons to Zakuska, or d'oeuvres, avoid engaging in any long conversation, but think it necessary to move about and talk, in order to show that they are not at all impatient for their food. The host and hostess look toward the door, and now and then glance at one another, and the visitors try to guess from these glances who or what they are waiting for, some important relation who has not yet arrived, or a dish that is not yet ready. Pierre had come just at dinner-time, and was sitting awkwardly in the middle of the drawing-room on the first chair he had come across, blocking the way for everyone. The Countess tried to make him talk, but he went on naively looking around through his spectacles as if in search of somebody, and answered all her questions in monosyllables. He was in the way, and was the only one who did not notice the fact. Most of the guests, knowing of the affair with the bear, looked with curiosity at this big, stout, quiet man, wondering how such a clumsy, modest fellow could have played such a prank on a policeman. "'You have only lately arrived?' the Countess asked him. "'Oui, madame,' replied he, looking around him. "'You have not yet seen my husband?' "'Non, madame,' he smiled quite inappropriately. You have been in Paris recently, I believe. I suppose it's very interesting." "'Very interesting.' The Countess exchanged glances with Anna Mikhailovna. The latter understood that she was being asked to entertain this young man, and sitting down beside him she began to speak about his father, but he answered her, as he had the Countess, only in monosyllables. The other guests were all conversing with one another. "'The Razumovskys! It was charming! You are very kind. Countess Apraxina was heard on all sides. The Countess rose and went into the ballroom. Maria Dmitrievna, came her voice from there. Herself, came the answer in a rough voice, and Maria Dmitrievna entered the room. All the unmarried ladies, and even the married ones, except the very oldest, rose. Maria Dmitrievna paused at the door. Tall and stout, holding high her fifty-year-old head with its gray curls, she stood surveying the guests, and leisurely arranged her wide sleeves as if rolling them up. Maria Dmitrievna always spoke in Russian. "'Health and happiness to her whose name-day we are keeping, and to her children,' she said in her loud, full-toned voice, which drowned all others. 
Well, you old sinner, she went on, turning to the Count, who was kissing her hand. You're feeling dull in Moscow, I dare say? Nowhere to hunt with your dogs? But what is to be done, old man? Just see how these nestlings are growing up. And she pointed to the girls. You must look for husbands for them, whether you like it or not. Well, said she, how's my Cossack? Maria Dmitrievna always called Natasha a Cossack, and she stroked the child's arm as she came up fearless and gay to kiss her hand. I know she's a scamp of a girl, but I like her. She took a pair of pear-shaped ruby earrings from her huge reticule, and, having given them to the rosy Natasha, who beamed with the pleasure of her Saint's Day fete, turned away at once and addressed herself to Pierre. "'Hey, hey, friend, come here a bit,' said she, assuming a soft, high tone of voice. "'Come here, my friend,' and she ominously tucked up her sleeve still higher. Pierre approached, looking at her in a childlike way through his spectacles. Come nearer, come nearer, friend. I used to be the only one to tell your father the truth when he was in favor, and in your case it's my evident duty." She paused. All were silent, expectant of what was to follow, for this was clearly only a prelude. "'A fine lad! My word! A fine lad! His father lies on his deathbed, and he amuses himself setting a policeman astride a bear! For shame, sir, for shame!' It would be better if you went to the war." She turned away and gave her hand to the Count, who could hardly keep from laughing. "'Well, I suppose it is time we were at table,' said Maria Dmitrievna. The Count went in first with Maria Dmitrievna. The Countess followed on the arm of a colonel of hussars, a man of importance to them because Nicholas was to go with him to the regiment. Then came Anna Mikhailovna with Shinshin. Burr gave his arm to Vera. The smiling Julie Karagina went in with Nicholas. After them other couples followed, filling the whole dining-hall, and last of all the children, tutors, and governesses followed singly. The footmen began moving about, chairs scraped, the band struck up in the gallery, and the guests settled down in their places. Then the strains of the Count's household band were replaced by the clatter of knives and forks, the voices of visitors, and the soft steps of the footmen. At one end of the table sat the Countess with Maria Dmitrievna on her right and Anna Mikhailovna on her left. The other lady visitors were farther down. At the other end sat the Count, with the hussar colonel on his left and Shinshin and the other male visitors on his right. Midway down the long table on one side sat the grown-up young people, Vera beside Berg and Pierre beside Boris, and on the other side the children, tutors, and governesses. From behind the crystal decanters and fruit-vases, the Count kept glancing at his wife and her tall cap with its light blue ribbons, and busily filled his neighbor's glasses, not neglecting his own. The Countess, in turn, without omitting her duties as hostess, threw significant glances from behind the pineapples at her husband, whose face and bald head seemed by their redness to contrast more than usual with his gray hair. At the ladies' end an even chatter of voices was heard all the time. At the men's end the voices sounded louder and louder, especially that one of the colonel of hussars, who, growing more and more flushed, ate and drank so much that the Count held him up as a pattern to the other guests. Berg, with tender smiles, was saying to Vera that love was not an earthly but a heavenly feeling. Boris was telling his new friend Pierre, 
who the guests were, and exchanging glances with Natasha, who was sitting opposite. Pierre spoke little, but examined the new faces, and ate a great deal. Of the two soups he chose turtle with savory patties, and went on to the game without omitting a single dish or one of the wines. These latter the butler thrust mysteriously forward, wrapped in a napkin from behind the next man's shoulders, and whispered, "'Dry Madeira!' "'Hungarian!' or "'Rhine-wine,' as the case might be." Of the four crystal glasses engraved with the Count's monogram that stood before his plate, Pierre held out one at random and drank with enjoyment, gazing with ever-increasing amiability at the other guests. Natasha, who sat opposite, was looking at Boris as girls of thirteen look at the boy they are in love with and have just kissed for the first time. Sometimes that same look fell on Pierre, and that funny, lively little girl's look made him inclined to laugh without knowing why. Nicholas sat at some distance from Sonia, beside Julie Karagina, to whom he was again talking with the same involuntary smile. Sonia wore a company smile, but was evidently tormented by jealousy. Now she turned pale, now blushed, and strained every nerve to overhear what Nicholas and Julie were saying to one another. The governess kept looking round uneasily, as if preparing to resent any slight that might be put upon the children. The German tutor was trying to remember all the dishes, wines, and kinds of dessert, in order to send a full description of the dinner to his people in Germany. And he felt greatly offended when the butler with a bottle wrapped in a napkin passed him by. He frowned, trying to appear as if he did not want any of that wine, but was mortified because no one would understand that it was not to quench his thirst or from greediness that he wanted it, but simply from a conscientious desire for knowledge. End of Book One, Chapter Eighteen Book One, Chapter Nineteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Nineteen At the men's end of the table, the talk grew more and more animated. The colonel told them that the declaration of war had already appeared in Petersburg, and that a copy, which he had himself seen, had that day been forwarded by courier to the commander-in-chief. "'And why the deuce are we going to fight Bonaparte?' remarked Shinshin. "'He has stopped Austria's cackle, and I fear it will be our turn next.' The colonel was a stout, tall, plethoric German, evidently devoted to the service and patriotically Russian. He resented Shinshin's remark. "'It is for the reason, my good sir,' said he, speaking with a German accent, "'for the reasons that the Emperor knows that. He declares in the manifesto that he cannot view with indifference the danger threatening Russia, and that the safety and dignity of the Empire as well as the sanctity of its alliances.' He spoke this last word with particular emphasis, as if in it lay the gist of the matter. Then, with the unerring official memory that characterized him, he repeated from the opening words of the manifesto, "'And the wish which constitutes the Emperor's sole and absolute aim, to establish peace in Europe on firm foundations, has now decided him to dispatch part of the army abroad, and to create a new condition for the attainment of that purpose.' "'That, my dear sir, is why,' he concluded, 
drinking a tumbler of wine with dignity and looking to the Count for approval. Connez-vous le proverbe? Do you know the proverb? Jerome, Jerome, do not roam, but turn spindles at home," said Shinshin, puckering his brows and smiling. C'est le nous convient à merveille. That suits us down to the ground. Suvorov now, he knew what he was about, yet they beat him a plat couture. Hollow. And where are we to find Suvorov's now? Je vous demande un peu. I just ask you that said he, continually changing from French to Russian. "'We must fight to the last drop of our blood,' said the colonel, thumping the table. "'And we must tie for our emperor, and then all will be fell. And we must discuss it as little as possible.' He dwelt particularly on the word possible, as possible. He ended, again turning to the Count. "'That is how we old hussars look at it, and there is an end of it. And how do you?' A young man and a young hussar, how do you judge of it?" he added, addressing Nicholas, who, when he heard that the war was being discussed, had turned from his partner with eyes and ears intent on the colonel. "'I am quite of your opinion,' replied Nicholas, flaming up, turning his plate round and moving his wine-glasses about, with as much decision and desperation as though he were at that moment facing some great danger. I am convinced that we Russians must die or conquer," he concluded, conscious, as were the others, after the words were uttered, that his remarks were too enthusiastic and emphatic for the occasion, and were therefore awkward. "'What you said just now was splendid,' said his partner Julie. Sonia trembled all over, and blushed to her ears and behind them and down to her neck and shoulders while Nicholas was speaking. Pierre listened to the colonel's speech and nodded approvingly. "'That's fine,' said he. "'The young man's a real hussar,' shouted the colonel, again thumping the table. "'What are you making such a noise about over there?' Maria Dmitrievna's deep voice suddenly inquired from the other end of the table. "'What are you thumping the table for?' she demanded of the hussar. "'And why are you exciting yourself? Do you think the French are here?' I am speaking the truce," replied the hussar with a smile. "'It's all about the war,' the Count shouted down the table. "'You know, my son's going, Maria Dmitrievna, my son is going. I have four sons in the army, but still I don't fret. It's all in God's hands. You may die in your bed, or God may spare you in battle,' replied Maria Dmitrievna's deep voice, which easily carried the whole length of the table. "'That's true.' Once more the conversations concentrated, the ladies at the one end and the men's at the other. "'You won't ask,' Natasha's little brother was saying. "'I know you won't ask.' "'I will,' replied Natasha. Her face suddenly flushed with reckless and joyous resolution. She half rose, by a glance inviting Pierre, who sat opposite, to listen to what was coming, and turning to her mother. Mama rang out the clear contralto notes of her childish voice, audible the whole length of the table. "'What is it?' asked the Countess, startled. But seeing by her daughter's face that it was only mischief, she shook a finger at her sternly with a threatening and forbidding movement of her head. The conversation was hushed. "'Mama, what sweets are we going to have?' And Natasha's voice sounded still more firm and resolute. The Countess tried to frown, but could not. Maria Dmitrievna shook her fat finger. 
"'Cossack!' she said threateningly. Most of the guests, uncertain how to regard this sally, looked at the elders. "'You had better take care,' said the Countess. "'Mama, what sweets are we going to have?' Natasha again cried boldly, with saucy gaiety, confident that her prank would be taken in good part. Sonia and fat little Petya doubled up with laughter. "'You see, I have asked,' whispered Natasha to her little brother and to Pierre, glancing at him again. "'Ice pudding, but you won't get any,' said Marya Dmitrievna. Natasha saw there was nothing to be afraid of, and so she braved even Marya Dmitrievna. "'Marya Dmitrievna, what kind of ice pudding? I don't like ice cream.' Carrot ices. No! What kind, Maria Dmitrievna? What kind? she almost screamed. I want to know! Maria Dmitrievna and the Countess burst out laughing, and all the guests joined in. Everyone laughed, not at Maria Dmitrievna's answer, but at the incredible boldness and smartness of this little girl, who had dared to treat Maria Dmitrievna in this fashion. Natasha only desisted when she had been told that there would be pineapple ice. Before the ices, champagne was served round. The band again struck up, the Count and Countess kissed, and the guests, leaving their seats, went up to congratulate the Countess, and reached across the table to clink glasses with the Count, with the children, and with one another. Again the footmen rushed about, chairs scraped, and in the same order in which they had entered, but with redder faces, the guests returned to the drawing-room and to the Count's study. End of Book One, Chapter Nineteen Book One, Chapter Twenty of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Aylmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty. The card tables were drawn out, sets made up for Boston, and the Count's visitors settled themselves, some in the two drawing rooms, some in the sitting room, some in the library. The Count, holding his cards fanwise, kept himself with difficulty from dropping into his usual after dinner nap, and laughed at everything. The young people, at the Countess' instigation, gathered round the clavichord and harp. Julie, by general request, played first. After she had played a little air with variations on the harp, she joined the other young ladies in begging Natasha and Nicholas, who were noted for their musical talent, to sing something. Natasha, who was treated as though she were grown up, was evidently very proud of this, but at the same time felt shy. "'What shall we sing?' she said. "'The brook,' suggested Nicholas. "'Well, then, let's be quick.' "'Boris, come here,' said Natasha. "'But where is Sonia?' She looked round, and seeing that her friend was not in the room, ran to look for her. Running into Sonia's room and not finding her there, Natasha ran to the nursery, but Sonia was not there either. Natasha concluded that she must be on the chest in the passage. The chest in the passage was the place of mourning for the younger female generation in the Rostov household and there in fact was Sonia lying face downward on nurse's dirty feather bed on the top of the chest, crumpling her gauzy pink dress under her, hiding her face with her slender fingers, 
and sobbing so convulsively that her bare little shoulder shook. Natasha's face, which had been so radiantly happy all that saint's day, suddenly changed. Her eyes became fixed, and then a shiver passed down her broad neck and the corners of her mouth drooped. "'Sonia! What is it? What is the matter? Oh! Oh! Oh!' And Natasha's large mouth widened, making her look quite ugly, and she began to wail like a baby without knowing why, except that Sonia was crying. Sonia tried to lift her head to answer but could not and hid her face still deeper in the bed. Natasha wept, sitting on the blue-striped feather bed and hugging her friend. With an effort, Sonia sat up and began wiping her eyes and explaining. "'Nicholas is going away in a week's time. His papers have come. He told me himself. But still I should not cry.' And she showed a paper she held in her hand, with the verses Nicholas had written. Still, I should not cry, but you can't—no one can understand—what a soul he has!" And she began to cry again because he had such a noble soul. "'It's all very well for you. I am not envious. I love you and Boris also,' she went on, gaining a little strength. "'He is nice. There are no difficulties in your way. But Nicholas is my cousin one would have to—the Metropolitan himself, and even then it can't be done. And besides, if she tells Mama, Sonia looked upon the Countess as her mother and called her so, that I am spoiling Nicholas' career and am heartless and ungrateful, while truly God is my witness." And she made the sign of the cross. I love her so much, and all of you, only Vera—and what for? What have I done to her? I am so grateful to you that I would willingly sacrifice everything, only I have nothing." Sonia could not continue, and again hid her face in her hands and in the feather bed. Natasha began consoling her, but her face showed that she understood all the gravity of her friend's trouble. "'Sonia!' she suddenly exclaimed, as if she had guessed the true reason of her friend's sorrow. I'm sure Vera has said something to you since dinner, hasn't she?" Yes. These verses Nicholas wrote himself, and I copied some others, and she found them on my table, and said she'd show them to Mama, and that I was ungrateful, and that Mama would never allow him to marry me, and that he'll marry Julie. You see how he's been with her all day. Natasha, what have I done to deserve it? and again she began to sob, more bitterly than before. Natasha lifted her up, hugged her, and smiling through her tears began comforting her. "'Sonia, don't believe her, darling. Don't believe her. Do you remember how we and Nicholas, all three of us, talked in the sitting-room after supper? Why, we settled how everything was to be. I don't quite remember how, but don't you remember that it could all be arranged and how nice it all was?' There's Uncle Shinshin's brother has married his first cousin, and we are only second cousins, you know, and Boris says it's quite possible. You know I have told him all about it, and he is so clever and so good," said Natasha. Don't you cry, Sonia, dear love, darling Sonia. And she kissed her and laughed. 
Vera's spiteful. Never mind her. And all will come right, and she won't say anything to Mama. Nicholas will tell her himself, and he doesn't care at all for Julie." Natasha kissed her on the hair. Sonia sat up. The little kitten brightened, its eyes shone, and it seemed ready to lift its tail, jump down on its soft paws, and begin playing with the ball of worsted as a kitten should. "'Do you think so? Really? Truly?' she said, quickly smoothing her frock and hair. "'Really, truly?' answered Natasha, pushing in a crisp lock that strayed from under her friend's plates. Both laughed. "'Well, let's go and sing the brook. Come along. Do you know that fat Pierre who sat opposite me is so funny?' said Natasha, stopping suddenly. "'I feel so happy.' And she set off at a run along the passage. Sonia, shaking off some down which clung to her and tucking away the verses in the bosom of her dress, close to her bony little chest, ran after Natasha down the passage into the sitting-room, with flushed face and light, joyous steps. At the visitor's request the young people sang the quartet, the brook, with which everyone was delighted. Then Nicholas sang a song he had just learned. At night-time in the moon's fair glow, how sweet as fancies wander free! to feel that in this world there's one who still is thinking but of thee, that while her fingers touch the harp, wafting sweet music o'er the lea, it is for thee thus swells her heart, sighing its message out to thee. A day or two, then bliss unspoilt, but, oh, till then I cannot live." He had not finished the last verse before the young people began to get ready to dance in the large hall and the sound of the feet and the coughing of the musicians were heard from the gallery. Pierre was sitting in the drawing-room, where Shinshin had engaged him, as a man recently returned from abroad, in a political conversation, in which several others joined, but which bored Pierre. When the music began, Natasha came in and walking straight up to Pierre, said, laughing and blushing, "'Mama told me to ask you to join the dancers.' "'I am afraid of mixing the figures.' Pierre replied, but if you will be my teacher, and lowering his big arm, he offered it to the slender little girl. While the couples were arranging themselves and the musicians tuning up, Pierre sat down with his little partner. Natasha was perfectly happy. She was dancing with a grown-up man who had been abroad. She was sitting in a conspicuous place and talking to him like a grown-up lady. She had a fan in her hand that one of the ladies had given her to hold. Assuming quite the pose of a society woman, heaven knows when and where she had learned it, she talked with her partner, fanning herself and smiling over the fan. "'Dear, dear, just look at her!' exclaimed the countess, as she crossed the ballroom, pointing to Natasha. Natasha blushed and laughed. "'Well, really, Mama, why should you? What is there to be surprised at?' In the midst of the third Écossaise there was a clatter of chairs being pushed back in the sitting-room, where the Count and Maria Dmitrievna had been playing cards with the majority of the more distinguished and older visitors. They now, stretching themselves after sitting so long and replacing their purses and pocket-books, entered the ballroom. First came Maria Dmitrievna and the Count, both with merry countenances. The Count, with playful ceremony, somewhat in ballet style, offered his bent arm to Maria Dmitrievna. He drew himself up, 
A smile of debonair gallantry lit up his face, and as soon as the last figure of the Écossaise was ended, he clapped his hands to the musicians and shouted up to their gallery, addressing the first violin. "'Simon! Do you know the Daniel Cooper?' This was the Count's favorite dance, which he had danced in his youth. Strictly speaking, Daniel Cooper was one figure of the Anglaise. "'Look at Papa!' shouted Natasha to the whole company, and quite forgetting that she was dancing with a grown-up partner, she bent her curly head to her knees and made the whole room ring with her laughter. And, indeed, everybody in the room looked with a smile of pleasure at the jovial old gentleman, who, standing beside his tall and stout partner, Maria Dmitrievna, curved his arms, beat time, straightened his shoulders, turned out his toes, tapped gently with his foot, and, by a smile that broadened his round face more and more, prepared the onlookers for what was to follow. As soon as the provocatively gay strains of Daniel Cooper, somewhat resembling those of a merry peasant dance, began to sound, all the doorways of the ballroom were suddenly filled by the domestic serfs, the men on one side and the women on the other, who with beaming faces had come to see their master making merry. "'Just look at the master! A regular eagle he is!' loudly remarked the nurse, as she stood in one of the doorways. The Count danced well, and knew it. But his partner could not, and did not want to dance well. Her enormous figure stood erect, her powerful arms hanging down, she had handed her reticule to the Countess, and only her stern but handsome face really joined in the dance. What was expressed by the hold of the Count's plump figure, in Maria Dmitrievna found expression only in her more and more beaming face and quivering nose. But if the Count, getting more and more into the swing of it, charmed the spectators by the unexpectedness of his adroit maneuvers and the agility with which he capered about on his light feet, Maria Dmitrievna produced no less impression by slight exertions, the least effort to move her shoulders or bend her arms when turning or stamp her foot, which every one appreciated in view of her size and habitual severity. The dance grew livelier and livelier. The other couples could not attract a moment's attention to their own evolutions, and did not even try to do so. All were watching the Count and Maria Dmitrievna. Natasha kept pulling everyone by sleeve or dress, urging them to look at Papa, though, as it was, they never took their eyes off the couple. In the intervals of the dance the Count, breathing deeply, waved and shouted to the musicians to play faster. Faster, faster, and faster. Lightly, more lightly, and yet more lightly whirled the Count, flying round Maria Dmitrievna, now on his toes, now on his heels, until, turning his partner round to her seat, he executed the final pas, raising his soft foot backwards, bowing his perspiring head, smiling and making a wide sweep with his arm, amid a thunder of applause and laughter led by Natasha. Both partners stood still, breathing heavily and wiping their faces with their cambric handkerchiefs. "'That's how we used to dance in our time, ma chère,' said the Count. "'That was a Daniel Cooper!' exclaimed Maria Dmitrievna, tucking up her sleeves and puffing heavily. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Book One, Chapter Twenty-One of War and Peace, Volume One 
by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty One. While in the Rostovs' ballroom, the sixth Anglaise was being danced, to a tune which the weary musicians blundered, and while tired footmen and cooks were getting the supper, Count Bezukhov had a sixth stroke. The doctors pronounced recovery impossible. After a mute confession, communion was administered to the dying man, preparations made for the sacrament of unction, and in his house there was the bustle and thrill of suspense usual at such moments. Outside the house, beyond the gates, a group of undertakers, who hid whenever a carriage drove up, waited in expectation of an important order for an expensive funeral. The military governor of Moscow, who had been assiduous in sending aides to camp to inquire after the Count's health, came himself that evening to bid a last farewell to the celebrated grandee of Catherine's court, Count Bezukhov. The magnificent reception-room was crowded. Everyone stood up respectfully when the military governor, having stayed about half an hour alone with the dying man, passed out, slightly acknowledging their bows, and trying to escape as quickly as possible from the glances fixed on him by the doctors, clergy, and relatives of the family. Prince Vasily, who had grown thinner and paler during the last few days, escorted him to the door, repeating something to him several times in low tones. When the military governor had gone, Prince Vasily sat down all alone on a chair in the ballroom, crossing one leg high over the other, leaning his elbow on his knee and covering his face with his hand. After sitting so for a while, he rose, and looking about him with frightened eyes, went with unusually hurried steps down the long corridor leading to the back of the house, to the room of the eldest princess. Those who were in the dimly lit reception-room spoke in nervous whispers, and whenever anyone went into or came from the dying man's room, grew silent and gazed with eyes full of curiosity or expectancy at his door, which creaked slightly when opened. The limits of human life are fixed and may not be o'erpassed," said an old priest to a lady who had taken a seat beside him and was listening naively to his words. "'I wonder, is it not too late to administer unction?' asked the lady, adding the priest's clerical title as if she had no opinion of her own on the subject. "'Ah, madam, it is a great sacrament,' replied the priest, passing his hand over the thin grizzled strands of hair combed back across his bald head. "'Who was that? The military governor himself?' was being asked at the other side of the room. "'How young-looking he is!' "'Yes, and he is over sixty. I hear the Count no longer recognizes anyone.' they wish to administer the sacrament of unction. I knew someone who received that sacrament seven times." The second princess had just come from the sick-room with her eyes red from weeping, and sat down beside Dr. Lorraine, who was sitting in a graceful pose under a portrait of Catherine, leaning his elbow on the table. "'Beautiful,' said the doctor, in answer to a remark about the weather. "'The weather is beautiful, princess. And besides, in Moscow one feels as if one were in the country." "'Yes, indeed,' replied the princess with a sigh. "'So he may have something to drink?' Lorraine considered. "'Has he taken his medicine?' "'Yes.' The doctor glanced at his watch. 
take a glass of boiled water and put a pinch of cream of tartar." And he indicated with his delicate fingers what he meant by a pinch. "'There has never been a case,' a German doctor was saying to an aide-de-camp, "'that one lives after the third stroke.' "'And what a well-preserved man he was!' remarked the aide-de-camp. "'And who will inherit his wealth?' he added in a whisper. "'It won't go begging.' replied the German with a smile. Everyone again looked toward the door, which creaked as the second princess went in with the drink she had prepared according to Lorraine's instructions. The German doctor went up to Lorraine. "'Do you think he can last till morning?' asked the German, addressing Lorraine in French, which he pronounced badly. Lorraine, pursing up his lips, waved a severely negative finger before his nose. "'Tonight, not later.' said he in a low voice, and he moved away with a decorous smile of self-satisfaction at being able clearly to understand and state the patient's condition. Meanwhile Prince Vasily had opened the door into the princess' room. In this room it was almost dark. Only two tiny lamps were burning before the icons, and there was a pleasant scent of flowers and burnt pastilles. The room was crowded with small pieces of furniture, whatnots, cupboards, and little tables. The quilt of a high, white-feather bed was just visible behind a screen. A small dog began to bark. "'Ah, is it you, cousin?' She rose and smoothed her hair, which was, as usual, so extremely smooth that it seemed to be made of one piece with her head and covered with varnish. "'Has anything happened?' she asked. "'I am so terrified.' "'No, there is no change.' I only came to have a talk about business, Katish, Catherine," muttered the prince, seating himself wearily on the chair she had just vacated. "'You have made the place warm, I must say,' he remarked. "'Well, sit down. Let's have a talk.' "'I thought perhaps something had happened,' she said with her unchanging, stonily severe expression, and sitting down opposite the prince she prepared to listen. I wish to get a nap, mon cousin, but I can't." "'Well, my dear,' said Prince Vasily, taking her hand and bending it downwards as was his habit. It was plain that this well referred to much that they both understood without naming. The princess, who had a straight rigid body, abnormally long for her legs, looked directly at Prince Vasily with no sign of emotion in her prominent grey eyes. Then she shook her head and glanced up at the icons with a sigh. This might have been taken as an expression of sorrow and devotion, or of weariness and hope of resting before long. Prince Vasily understood it as an expression of weariness. "'And I,' he said, "'do you think it is easier for me? I am as worn out as a post-horse, but still I must have a talk with you, Katish, a very serious talk.' Prince Vasily said no more, and his cheeks began to twitch nervously, now on one side, now on the other, giving his face an unpleasant expression which was never to be seen on it in a drawing-room. His eyes, too, seemed strange. At one moment they looked impudently sly, and at the next glanced round in alarm. The princess, holding her little dog on her lap with her thin bony hands, looked attentively into Prince Vasily's eyes, evidently resolved not to be the first to break silence, if she had to wait till morning. "'Well, 
You see, my dear princess and cousin, Catherine Semenovna, continued Prince Vasily, returning to his theme, apparently not without an inner struggle. At such a moment as this one must think of everything. One must think of the future, of all of you. I love you all, like children of my own, as you know." The princess continued to look at him without moving, and with the same dull expression. And then, of course, my family has also to be considered. Prince Vasily went on, testily pushing away a little table without looking at her. You know, Katish, that we, you three sisters, Mamontov and my wife, are the Count's only direct heirs. I know, I know how hard it is for you to talk or think of such matters. It is no easier for me. But, my dear, I am getting on for sixty, and must be prepared for anything. Do you know I have sent for Pierre? The Count, pointing to his portrait, definitely demanded that he should be called. Prince Vasily looked questioningly at the princess, but could not make out whether she was considering what he had just said, or whether she was simply looking at him. "'There is one thing I constantly pray God to grant, mon cousin,' she replied, "'and it is that he would be merciful to him, and would allow his noble soul peacefully to leave this—yes, yes, of course,' interrupted Prince Vasily impatiently, rubbing his bald head and angrily pulling back toward him the little table that he had pushed away. "'But, in short, the fact is—' You know yourself that last winter the Count made a will by which he left all his property, not to us his direct heirs, but to Pierre." "'He has made wills enough,' quietly remarked the Princess. "'But he cannot leave the estate to Pierre. Pierre is illegitimate.' "'But, my dear,' said Prince Vasily suddenly, clutching the little table and becoming more animated and talking more rapidly. What if a letter has been written to the Emperor, in which the Count asks for Pierre's legitimation? Do you understand that, in consideration of the Count's services, his request would be granted?" The Princess smiled as people do who think they know more about the subject under discussion than those they are talking with. "'I can tell you more,' continued Prince Vasily, seizing her hand. That letter was written, though it was not sent, and the Emperor knew of it. The only question is, has it been destroyed or not? If not, then, as soon as all is over, and Prince Vasily sighed to intimate what he meant by the words, all is over, and the Count's papers are opened, the will and letter will be delivered to the Emperor, and the petition will certainly be granted. Pierre will get everything as the legitimate son. And our share? asked the Princess, smiling ironically as if anything might happen, only not that. But, my poor Katish, it is as clear as daylight. He will then be the legal heir to everything, and you won't get anything. You must know, my dear, whether the will and letter were written, and whether they have been destroyed or not. And if they have somehow been overlooked, you ought to know where they are, and must find them, because— What next? the princess interrupted, smiling sardonically, and not changing the expression of her eyes. "'I am a woman, and you think we are all stupid. But I know this. An illegitimate son cannot inherit. Un batard. 
a bastard, she added, as if supposing that this translation of the word would effectively prove to Prince Vasily the invalidity of his contention. Well, really, Katish, can't you understand? You are so intelligent. How is it you don't see that, if the Count has written a letter to the Emperor begging him to recognize Pierre as legitimate, it follows that Pierre will not be Pierre, but will become Count Bezukhov, and will then inherit everything under the will? And if the will and letter are not destroyed, then you will have nothing but the consolation of having been dutiful at tout ce qui s'en suit, and all that follows therefrom. That's certain. I know the will was made, but I also know that it is invalid, and you, mon cousin, seem to consider me a perfect fool," said the princess, with the expression women assume when they suppose they are saying something witty and stinging. "'My dear Princess Catherine Semenovna,' began Prince Vasily impatiently, "'I came here not to wrangle with you, but to talk about your interests as with a kinswoman, a good, kind, true relation. And I tell you for the tenth time that if the letter to the Emperor and the will in Pierre's favour are among the Count's papers, then, my dear girl, you and your sisters are not heiresses. If you don't believe me, then believe an expert.' I have just been talking to Dmitri Anufritch, the family solicitor, and he says the same." At this a sudden change evidently took place in the princess's ideas. Her thin lips grew white, though her eyes did not change, and her voice, when she began to speak, passed through such transitions as she herself evidently did not expect. "'That would be a fine thing,' said she. "'I never wanted anything, and I don't now.' She pushed the little dog off her lap and smoothed her dress. "'And this is gratitude. This is recognition for those who have sacrificed everything for his sake,' she cried. "'It is splendid. Fine. I don't want anything, Prince.' "'Yes, but you are not the only one. There are your sisters,' replied Prince Vasily. But the Princess did not listen to him. "'Yes, I knew it long ago, but had forgotten.' I knew that I could expect nothing but meanness, deceit, envy, intrigue, and ingratitude, the blackest ingratitude in this house. "'Do you or do you not know where that will is?' insisted Prince Vasily, his cheeks twitching more than ever. "'Yes, I was a fool. I still believed in people, loved them, and sacrificed myself. But only the base, the vile succeed. I know who has been intriguing." The princess wished to rise, but the prince held her by the hand. She had the air of one who has suddenly lost faith in the whole human race. She gave her companion an angry glance. "'There is still time, my dear. You must remember, Katish, that it was all done casually, in a moment of anger, of illness, and was afterwards forgotten. Our duty, my dear, is to rectify his mistake to ease his last moments by not letting him commit this injustice, and not to let him die feeling that he is rendering unhappy those who—who who sacrificed everything for him," chimed in the princess, who would again have risen had not the prince still held her fast. Though he never could appreciate it. No, mon cousin," she added with a sigh, I shall always remember that in this world one must expect no reward that in this world there is neither honour nor justice. In this world one has to be cunning and cruel. 
Now, come, come, be reasonable. I know your excellent heart. No, I have a wicked heart. I know your heart," repeated the prince. I value your friendship and wish you to have as good an opinion of me. Don't upset yourself, and let us talk sensibly while there is still time, be it a day or be it but an hour. Tell me all you know about the will, and above all, where it is. You must know. We will take it at once and show it to the Count. He has, no doubt, forgotten it, and will wish to destroy it. You understand that my sole desire is conscientiously to carry out his wishes. That is my only reason for being here. I came simply to help him and you." "'Now I see it all. I know who has been intriguing. I know!' cried the Princess. "'That's not the point, my dear. It is that protégé of yours, that sweet Princess Drubitskaya, that Anna Mikhailovna, whom I would not take for a housemaid the infamous vile woman. Do not let us lose any time. Ah, don't talk to me! Last winter she wheedled herself in here and told the Count such vile, disgraceful things about us, especially about Sophie—I can't repeat them—that it made the Count quite ill, and he would not see us for a whole fortnight. I know it was then he wrote this vile, infamous paper, but I thought the thing was invalid. We've got to it at last. Why did you not tell me about it sooner?" "'It's in the inlaid portfolio that he keeps under his pillow,' said the Princess, ignoring his question. "'Now I know. Yes, if I have a sin, a great sin, it is hatred of that vile woman!' almost shrieked the Princess, now quite changed. "'And what does she come worming herself in here for? But I will give her a piece of my mind. The time will come. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty One. Book One, Chapter Twenty Two of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty Two. While these conversations were going on in the reception-room and the princess-room, a carriage containing Pierre, who had been sent for, and Anna Mikhailovna, who found it necessary to accompany him, was driving into the court of Count Bezukhov's house. As the wheels rolled softly over the straw beneath the windows, Anna Mikhailovna, having turned with words of comfort to her companion, realized that he was asleep in his corner and woke him up. Rousing himself, Pierre followed Anna Mikhailovna out of the carriage, and only then began to think of the interview with his dying father which awaited him. He noticed that they had not come to the front entrance but to the back door. While he was getting down from the carriage steps two men, who looked like tradespeople, ran hurriedly from the entrance and hid in the shadow of the wall. Pausing for a moment, Pierre noticed several other men of the same kind hiding in the shadow of the house on both sides but neither Anna Mikhailovna nor the footman nor the coachman, who could not help seeing these people, took any notice of them. "'It seems to be all right,' Pierre concluded, and followed Anna Mikhailovna. She hurriedly ascended the narrow, dimly-lit stone staircase, calling to Pierre, who was lagging behind, to follow. 
though he did not see why it was necessary for him to go to the Count at all, still less why he had to go by the back stairs, yet judging by Anna Mikhailovna's air of assurance and haste, Pierre concluded that it was all absolutely necessary. Halfway up the stairs they were almost knocked over by some men, who, carrying pails, came running downstairs, their boots clattering. These men pressed close to the wall to let Pierre and Anna Mikhailovna pass, and did not evince the least surprise at seeing them there. "'Is this the way to the princess's apartments?' asked Anna Mikhailovna of one of them. "'Yes,' replied a footman, in a bold, loud voice, as if anything were now permissible. "'The door to the left, ma'am.' "'Perhaps the Count did not ask for me,' said Pierre, when he reached the landing. "'I'd better go to my own room.' Anna Mikhailovna paused and waited for him to come up. "'Ah, my friend,' she said, touching his arm as she had done her son's when speaking to him that afternoon, "'believe me, I suffer no less than you do, but be a man.' "'But really, hadn't I better go away?' he asked, looking kindly at her over his spectacles. "'Ah, my dear friend, forget the wrongs that may have been done you. Think that he is your father.' perhaps in the agony of death." She sighed. "'I have loved you like a son from the first. Trust yourself to me, Pierre. I shall not forget your interests.' Pierre did not understand a word, but the conviction that all this had to be grew stronger, and he meekly followed Anna Mikhailovna, who was already opening a door. This door led into a back anteroom. An old man, a servant of the princess's, sat in a corner knitting a stocking. Pierre had never been in this part of the house, and did not even know of the existence of these rooms. Anna Mikhailovna, addressing a maid who was hurrying past with a decanter on a tray, as my dear and my sweet, asked about the prince's health and then led Pierre along a stone passage. The first door on the left led into the princess's apartments. The maid with the decanter in her haste had not closed the door, everything in the house was done in haste at that time, and Pierre and Anna Mikhailovna in passing instinctively glanced into the room, where Prince Vasily and the eldest princess were sitting close together talking. Seeing them pass, Prince Vasily drew back with obvious impatience, while the princess jumped up and with a gesture of desperation slammed the door with all her might. This action was so unlike her usual composure, and the fear depicted on Prince Vasily's face so out of keeping with his dignity, that Pierre stopped and glanced inquiringly over his spectacles at his guide. Anna Mikhailovna evinced no surprise, she only smiled faintly and sighed, as if to say that this was no more than she had expected. "'Be a man, my friend. I will look after your interests,' said she in reply to his look, and went still faster along the passage. Pierre could not make out what it was all about, and still less what watching over his interests meant, but he decided that all these things had to be. From the passage they went into a large, dimly lit room, adjoining the Count's reception room. It was one of those sumptuous but cold apartments, known to Pierre only from the front approach, but even in this room there now stood an empty bath, and water had been spilled on the carpet. They were met by a deacon with a censer and by a servant who passed out on tiptoe without heeding them. They went into the reception-room familiar to Pierre, with two Italian windows opening into the conservatory, 
with its large bust and full-length portrait of Catherine the Great. The same people were still sitting here in almost the same positions as before, whispering to one another. All became silent and turned to look at the pale, tear-worn Anna Mikhailovna as she entered, and at the big, stout figure of Pierre, who, hanging his head, meekly followed her. Anna Mikhailovna's face expressed a consciousness that the decisive moment had arrived. With the air of a practical Petersburg lady, she now, keeping Pierre close beside her, entered the room even more boldly than that afternoon. She felt that as she brought with her the person the dying man wished to see, her own admission was assured. Casting a rapid glance at all those in the room and noticing the Count's confessor there, she glided up to him with a sort of amble, not exactly bowing, yet seeming to grow suddenly smaller, and respectfully received the blessing first of one and then of another priest. "'God be thanked that you are in time,' said she to one of the priests. "'All we relatives have been in such anxiety. This young man is the Count's son,' she added more softly. "'What a terrible moment!' Having said this, she went up to the doctor. "'Dear doctor,' said she, this young man is the Count's son. Is there any hope?" The doctor cast a rapid glance upwards and silently shrugged his shoulders. Anna Mikhailovna, with just the same movement, raised her shoulders and eyes, almost closing the latter, sighed, and moved away from the doctor to Pierre. To him, in a particularly respectful and tenderly sad voice, she said, "'Trust in his mercy.' and pointing out a small sofa for him to sit and wait for her, she went silently toward the door that everyone was watching, and it creaked very slightly as she disappeared behind it. Pierre, having made up his mind to obey his monitress implicitly, moved toward the sofa she had indicated. As soon as Anna Mikhailovna had disappeared, he noticed that the eyes of all in the room turned to him with something more than curiosity and sympathy. He noticed that they whispered to one another, casting significant looks at him with a kind of awe and even servility. A deference such as he had never before received was shown him. A strange lady, the one who had been talking to the priests, rose and offered him her seat. An aide-de-camp picked up and returned a glove Pierre had dropped. The doctors became respectfully silent as he passed by and moved to make way for him. At first Pierre wished to take another seat so as not to trouble the lady, and also to pick up the glove himself and to pass round the doctors who were not even in his way. But all at once he felt that this would not do, and that to-night he was a person obliged to perform some sort of awful rite which every one expected of him, and that he was therefore bound to accept their services. He took the glove in silence from the aide-de-camp, and sat down in the lady's chair placing his huge hand symmetrically on his knees in the naive attitude of an Egyptian statue, and decided in his own mind that all was as it should be, and that in order not to lose his head and do foolish things, he must not act on his own ideas to-night, but must yield himself up entirely to the will of those who were guiding him. Not two minutes had passed before Prince Vasily, with head erect, majestically entered the room. He was wearing his long coat with three stars on his breast. He seemed to have grown thinner since the morning. His eyes seemed larger than usual when he glanced round and noticed Pierre. He went up to him, took his hand, a thing he never used to do, 
and drew it downwards as if wishing to ascertain whether it was firmly fixed on. "'Courage, courage, my friend. He has asked to see you. That is well.' And he turned to go. But Pierre thought it necessary to ask, "'How is—' and hesitated, not knowing whether it would be proper to call the dying man the Count, yet ashamed to call him father. He had another stroke about half an hour ago. Courage, my friend!" Pierre's mind was in such a confused state that the word stroke suggested to him a blow from something. He looked at Prince Vasily in perplexity, and only later grasped that a stroke was an attack of illness. Prince Vasily said something to Lorraine in passing and went through the door on tiptoe. He could not walk well on tiptoe, and his whole body jerked at each step. The eldest princess followed him, and the priests and deacons and some servants also went in at the door. Through that door was heard a noise of things being moved about, and at last Anna Mikhailovna, still with the same expression, pale but resolute in the discharge of duty, ran out and touching Pierre lightly on the arm said, "'The divine mercy is inexhaustible. Unction is about to be administered. Come!' Pierre went in at the door, stepping on the soft carpet, and noticed that the strange lady, the aide-de-camp, and some of the servants all followed him in, as if there were now no further need for permission to enter that room. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Two Book One, Chapter Twenty-Three of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty-Three. Pierre well knew this large room divided by columns and an arch, its walls hung round with Persian carpets. The part of the room behind the columns, with a high silk-curtained mahogany bedstead on one side, and on the other an immense case containing icons, was brightly illuminated with red light, like a Russian church during evening service. Under the gleaming icons stood a long invalid chair, and in that chair, on snowy white smooth pillows, evidently freshly changed, Pierre saw, covered to the waist by a bright green quilt, the familiar majestic figure of his father, Count Bazukov, with that grey mane of hair above his broad forehead which reminded one of a lion and the deep, characteristically noble wrinkles of his handsome, ruddy face. He lay just under the icons, his large thick hands outside the quilt. Into the right hand, which was lying palm downwards, a wax taper had been thrust between forefinger and thumb, and an old servant, bending over from behind the chair, held it in position. By the chair stood the priests, their long hair falling over their magnificent glittering vestments, with lighted tapers in their hands, slowly and solemnly conducting the service. A little behind them stood the two younger princesses holding handkerchiefs to their eyes, and just in front of them their eldest sister, Katish, with a vicious and determined look steadily fixed on the icons, as though declaring to all that she could not answer for herself should she glance round. Anna Mikhailovna, with a meek, sorrowful, and all-forgiving expression on her face, stood by the door near the strange lady. Prince Vasily in front of the door, near the invalid chair, 
a wax taper in his left hand, was leaning his left arm on the carved back of a velvet chair he had turned round for the purpose, and was crossing himself with his right hand, turning his eyes upward each time he touched his forehead. His face wore a calm look of piety and resignation to the will of God. "'If you do not understand these sentiments,' he seemed to be saying, "'so much the worse for you.' Behind him stood the aide-de-camp, the doctors and the men-servants. The men and women had separated as in church. All were silently crossing themselves, and the reading of the church service, the subdued chanting of deep bass voices, and in the intervals sighs and the shuffling of feet, were the only sounds that could be heard. Anna Mikhailovna, with an air of importance that showed that she felt she quite knew what she was about, went across the room to where Pierre was standing, and gave him a taper. He lit it and, distracted by observing those around him, began crossing himself with the hand that held the taper. Sophie, the rosy, laughter-loving youngest princess with the mole, watched him. She smiled, hid her face in her handkerchief, and remained with it hidden for a while. Then looking up and seeing Pierre, she again began to laugh. She evidently felt unable to look at him without laughing, but could not resist looking at him, so, to be out of temptation, she slipped quietly behind one of the columns. In the midst of the service the voices of the priest suddenly ceased, they whispered to one another, and the old servant who was holding the Count's hand got up and said something to the ladies. Anna Mikhailovna stepped forward, and, stooping over the dying man, beckoned to Lorraine from behind her back. The French doctor held no taper. He was leaning against one of the columns in a respectful attitude, implying that he, a foreigner, in spite of all differences of faith, understood the full importance of the rite now being performed, and even approved of it. He now approached the sick man with the noiseless step of one in full vigor of life, with his delicate white fingers raised from the green quilt the hand that was free, and turning sideways felt the pulse and reflected a moment. The sick man was given something to drink, there was a stir around him, then the people resumed their places and the service continued. During this interval, Pierre noticed that Prince Vasily left the chair on which he had been leaning, and, with an air which intimated that he knew what he was about, and if others did not understand him it was so much the worse for them, did not go up to the dying man but passed by him, joined the eldest princess, and moved with her to the side of the room where stood the high bedstead with its silken hangings. On leaving the bed both Prince Vasily and the princess passed out by a back door, but returned to their places one after the other before the service was concluded. Pierre paid no more attention to this occurrence than to the rest of what went on, having made up his mind once for all that what he saw happening around him that evening was in some way essential. The chanting of the service ceased, and the voice of the priest was heard respectfully congratulating the dying man on having received the sacrament. The dying man lay as lifeless and immovable as before. Around him everyone began to stir. Steps were audible, and whispers, among which Anna Mikhailovna's was the most distinct. Pierre heard her say, "'Certainly he must be moved on to the bed. Here it will be impossible.' The sick man was so surrounded by doctors, princesses, and servants, that Pierre could no longer see the reddish-yellow face with its grey mane, which, though he saw other faces as well, he had not lost sight of for a single moment during the whole service. 
he judged by the cautious movements of those who crowded round the invalid chair, that they had lifted the dying man and were moving him. "'Catch hold of my arm, or you'll drop him,' he heard one of the servants say in a frightened whisper. "'Catch hold from underneath. Here!' exclaimed different voices, and the heavy breathing of the bearers and the shuffling of their feet grew more hurried, as if the weight they were carrying were too much for them. As the bearers, among whom was Anna Mikhailovna, passed the young man, he caught a momentary glimpse between their heads and backs of the dying man's high, stout, uncovered chest and powerful shoulders, raised by those who were holding him under the armpits, and of his grey, curly, leonine head. This head, with its remarkably broad brow and cheekbones, its handsome, sensual mouth, and its cold, majestic expression, was not disfigured by the approach of death. It was the same as Pierre remembered it three months before, when the Count had sent him to Petersburg. But now his head was swaying helplessly with the uneven movements of the bearers, and the cold, listless gaze fixed itself upon nothing. After a few minutes' bustle beside the high bedstead, those who had carried the sick man dispersed. Anna Mikhailovna touched Pierre's hand and said, Come. Pierre went with her to the bed on which the sick man had been laid in a stately pose in keeping with the ceremony just completed. He lay with his head propped high on the pillows. His hands were symmetrically placed on the green silk quilt, the palms downward. When Pierre came up the Count was gazing straight at him, but with a look the significance of which could not be understood by mortal man. Either this look meant nothing, but that as long as one has eyes they must look somewhere, or it meant too much. Pierre hesitated, not knowing what to do, and glanced inquiringly at his guide. Anna Mikhailovna made a hurried sign with her eyes, glancing at the sick man's hand and moving her lips as if to scent it a kiss. Pierre, carefully stretching his neck so as not to touch the quilt, followed her suggestion and pressed his lips to the large-boned, fleshy hand. Neither the hand nor a single muscle of the Count's face stirred. Once more Pierre looked questioningly at Anna Mikhailovna to see what he was to do next. Anna Mikhailovna, with her eyes, indicated a chair that stood beside the bed. Pierre obediently sat down, his eyes asking if he were doing right. Anna Mikhailovna nodded approvingly. Again Pierre fell into the naively symmetrical pose of an Egyptian statue, evidently distressed that his stout and clumsy body took up so much room and doing his utmost to look as small as possible. He looked at the Count, who still gazed at the spot where Pierre's face had been before he sat down. Anna Mikhailovna indicated by her attitude her consciousness of the pathetic importance of these last moments of meeting between the father and son. This lasted about two minutes, which to Pierre seemed an hour. Suddenly the broad muscles and lines of the Count's face began to twitch. The twitching increased, the handsome mouth was drawn to one side, only now did Pierre realize how near death his father was, and from that distorted mouth issued an indistinct, hoarse sound. Anna Mikhailovna looked attentively at the sick man's eyes, trying to guess what he wanted. She pointed first to Pierre, then to some drink, then named Prince Vasily in an inquiring whisper, then pointed to the quilt. The eyes and face of the sick man showed impatience. He made an effort to look at the servant who stood constantly at the head of the bed. 
wants to turn on the other side,' whispered the servant, and got up to turn the Count's heavy body toward the wall. Pierre rose to help him. While the Count was being turned over, one of his arms fell back helplessly and he made a fruitless effort to pull it forward. Whether he noticed the look of terror with which Pierre regarded that lifeless arm, or whether some other thought flitted across his dying brain, at any rate he glanced at the refractory arm, at Pierre's terror-stricken face, and again at the arm, and on his face a feeble, piteous smile appeared, quite out of keeping with his features, that seemed to deride his own helplessness. At sight of this smile Pierre felt an unexpected quivering in his breast and a tickling in his nose, and tears dimmed his eyes. The sick man was turned on to his side, with his face to the wall. He sighed. "'He is dozing,' said Anna Mikhailovna, observing that one of the princesses was coming to take her turn at watching. "'Let us go.' Pierre went out. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Three Book One, Chapter Twenty-Four of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty-Four. There was now no one in the reception room except Prince Vasily and the eldest princess, who were sitting under the portrait of Catherine the Great and talking eagerly. As soon as they saw Pierre and his companion, they became silent and Pierre thought he saw the princess hide something as she whispered, "'I can't bear the sight of that woman!' "'Katish has had tea served in the small drawing-room,' said Prince Vasily to Anna Mikhailovna. "'Go and take something, my poor Anna Mikhailovna, or you will not hold out.' To Pierre he said nothing, merely giving his arm a sympathetic squeeze below the shoulder. Pierre went with Anna Mikhailovna into the small drawing-room. There is nothing so refreshing after a sleepless night as a cup of this delicious Russian tea," Lorraine was saying with an air of restrained animation, as he stood sipping tea from a delicate Chinese handleless cup before a table on which tea and a cold supper were laid in the small circular room. Around the table all who were at Count Bezukhov's house that night had gathered to fortify themselves. Pierre well remembered this small circular drawing-room with its mirrors and little tables. During balls given at the house, Pierre, who did not know how to dance, had liked sitting in this room to watch the ladies, who, as they passed through in their ball-dresses with diamonds and pearls on their bare shoulders, looked at themselves in the brilliantly lighted mirrors which repeated their reflections several times. Now this same room was dimly lighted by two candles. On one small table tea-things and supper-dishes stood in disorder and in the middle of the night a motley throng of people sat there, not merry-making, but somberly whispering, and betraying by every word and movement that they none of them forgot what was happening and what was about to happen in the bedroom. Pierre did not eat anything, though he would very much have liked to. He looked inquiringly at his monitress and saw that she was again going on tiptoe to the reception-room, where they had left Prince Vasily and the eldest princess. Pierre concluded that this also was essential, and, after a short interval, followed her. Anna Mikhailovna was standing beside the princess, and they were both speaking in excited whispers. "'Permit me, princess, to know what is necessary and what is not necessary, 
said the younger of the two speakers, evidently in the same state of excitement as when she had slammed the door of her room. "'But, my dear princess,' answered Anna Mikhailovna blandly but impressively, blocking the way to the bedroom and preventing the other from passing, "'won't this be too much for poor uncle at a moment when he needs repose? Worldly conversation at a moment when his soul is already prepared?' Prince Vasily was seated in an easy-chair in his familiar attitude, with one leg crossed high above the other. His cheeks, which were so flabby that they looked heavier below, were twitching violently. But he wore the air of a man little concerned in what the two ladies were saying. "'Come, my dear Anna Mikhailovna, let Katish do as she pleases. You know how fond the Count is of her.' "'I don't even know what is in this paper.' said the younger of the two ladies, addressing Prince Vasily, and pointing to an inlaid portfolio she held in her hand. "'All I know is that his real will is in his writing-table, and this is a paper he has forgotten.' She tried to pass Anna Mikhailovna, but the latter sprang so as to bar her path. "'I know, my dear kind princess,' said Anna Mikhailovna, seizing the portfolio so firmly that it was plain she would not let go easily. Dear princess, I beg and implore you, have some pity on him. Je vous en conjure." The princess did not reply. Their efforts in the struggle for the portfolio were the only sounds audible, but it was evident that if the princess did speak, her words would not be flattering to Anna Mikhailovna. Though the latter held on tenaciously, her voice lost none of its honeyed firmness and softness. "'Pierre, my dear, come here. I think he will not be out of place in a family consultation. Is it not so, Prince?' "'Why don't you speak, cousin?' suddenly shrieked the Princess so loud that those in the drawing-room heard her and were startled. "'Why do you remain silent when Heaven knows who permits herself to interfere, making a scene on the very threshold of a dying man's room? Intriguer!' she hissed viciously and tugged with all her might at the portfolio but Anna Mikhailovna went forward a step or two to keep her hold on the portfolio and changed her grip. Prince Vasily rose. "'Oh!' said he, with reproach and surprise, "'this is absurd. Come, let go, I tell you.' The princess let go. "'And you, too.' But Anna Mikhailovna did not obey him. "'Let go, I tell you. I will take the responsibility. I myself will go and ask him.' I, does that satisfy you?' "'But, Prince,' said Anna Mikhailovna, "'after such a solemn sacrament, allow him a moment's peace. Here, Pierre, tell them your opinion,' said she, turning to the young man, who, having come quite close, was gazing with astonishment at the angry face of the princess which had lost all dignity, and at the twitching cheeks of Prince Vasily. "'Remember that you will answer for the consequences,' said Prince Vasily severely. "'You don't know what you are doing.' "'Vile woman!' shouted the princess, darting unexpectedly at Anna Mikhailovna and snatching the portfolio from her. Prince Vasily bent his head and spread out his hands. At this moment that terrible door, which Pierre had watched so long and which had always opened so quietly, burst noisily open and banged against the wall, and the second of the three sisters rushed out wringing her hands. "'What are you doing?' she cried vehemently. "'He is dying, and you leave me all alone with him!' 
her sister dropped the portfolio. Anna Mikhailovna, stooping, quickly caught up the object of contention and ran into the bedroom. The eldest princess and Prince Vasily, recovering themselves, followed her. A few minutes later the eldest sister came out with a pale, hard face, again biting her underlip. At sight of Pierre her expression showed an irrepressible hatred. "'Yes, now you may be glad,' said she. "'This is what you have been waiting for.' And bursting into tears she hid her face in her handkerchief and rushed from the room. Prince Vasily came next. He staggered to the sofa on which Pierre was sitting and dropped onto it, covering his face with his hand. Pierre noticed that he was pale and that his jaw quivered and shook as if in an ague. "'Ah, my friend,' said he, taking Pierre by the elbow, and there was in his voice a sincerity and weakness Pierre had never observed in it before. "'How often we sin, how much we deceive, and all for what? I am near sixty, dear friend. I, too. All will end in death, all. Death is awful.' And he burst into tears. Anna Mikhailovna came out last. She approached Pierre with slow, quiet steps. "'Pierre,' she said. Pierre gave her an inquiring look. She kissed the young man on his forehead, wetting him with her tears. Then, after a pause, she said, "'He is no more.' Pierre looked at her over his spectacles. "'Come, I will go with you. Try to weep. Nothing gives such relief as tears.' She led him into the dark drawing-room, and Pierre was glad no one could see his face. Anna Mikhailovna left him, and when she returned he was fast asleep with his head on his arm. In the morning Anna Mikhailovna said to Pierre, "'Yes, my dear, this is a great loss for us all, not to speak of you. But God will support you. You are young, and are now, I hope, in command of an immense fortune. The will has not yet been opened. I know you well enough to be sure that this will not turn your head, but it imposes duties on you, and you must be a man.' Pierre was silent. Perhaps later on I may tell you, my dear boy, that if I had not been there, God only knows what would have happened. You know, Uncle promised me only the day before yesterday not to forget Boris. But he had no time. I hope, my dear friend, you will carry out your father's wish." Pierre understood nothing of all this, and coloring shyly, looked in silence at Princess Anna Mikhailovna. After her talk with Pierre, Anna Mikhailovna returned to the Rostovs and went to bed. On waking in the morning she told the Rostovs and all her acquaintances the details of Count Bezukhov's death. She said the Count had died as she would herself wish to die, that his end was not only touching but edifying. As to the last meeting between father and son, it was so touching that she could not think of it without tears, and did not know which had behaved better during those awful moments the father who so remembered everything and everybody at last, and had spoken such pathetic words to the son, or Pierre, whom it had been pitiful to see, so stricken was he with grief, though he tried hard to hide it in order not to sadden his dying father. It is painful, but it does one good. It uplifts the soul to see such men as the old Count and his worthy son," said she. 
Of the behavior of the eldest princess and Prince Vasily, she spoke disapprovingly, but in whispers and as a great secret. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Four. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.